If you have not been here for the last couple of weeks uh, for our series that we've called Living Sacrifices and Walking Through Romans Chapter 12, we have built a camp, decided just to stop on a passage of Scripture that is one of the most difficult passages, most difficult commands that Jesus gives for His followers to follow. One of the most difficult things that we can put into our lives and something that not only seems impossible when you read it, but it goes against everything in our human nature. It goes against everything that our culture tells us how we should live. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, that says, Bless those who have persecuted you. Bless and do not curse. My plan for this passages of Scripture originally had been to do chapter 12, verse 14, 16, do it in one service, just have one service. And a couple of weeks ago, as I planned this out and began to pray about it, God put on my heart that we needed to camp here. We needed to stop here. We needed to slow down. I originally planned to preach through Romans chapter 12 just in six sermons, but we're on sermon 13, so who knows what God has planned. But, But I felt like we had to stay here and camp here. This truth is so important. It's so vital, difficult, that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to stay here. Because I believe He thinks that many of us, or probably just me, are having a difficult time not just wrapping our head around the idea of blessing those who hurt us, blessing those who betray us in our prayer, but by doing it vocally. By saying good things about those very same people instead of cursing them. And it's so hard for us to to grasp and to, to follow that it's easy for us just to come to church and hear it and walk away and put it in our back pocket and never follow through. This happens many times and I notice as pastors we learn something and I, it's amazing to me to stand up here and teach and I can see when the Holy Spirit is teaching and revealing something new to you and, and, it, and you want to apply it to your life and so you take it and that week you, you strive to apply it to your life and you're, you're trying to make it a priority to try to do that that week. And then you come back to church in a couple of weeks and you learn the new truth and you begin to apply that new truth to your life and that other thing that you've been working on before you ever get it to a place to where it becomes part of your daily discipline, you kind of relegate it back and work on this new truth. And so I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to stay here and today's the last day. Next week we're going to move on to to verse 17. But, But He wanted us to stay here because some of us are struggling this morning and this week and last week with the idea of trying to bless someone who's been mean to us, someone who's hurt us. So once again, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. It's listed in your order of service. We remind you that Romans chapter 12 is all about relationships. It's about taking what Paul taught in verses one through, chapters 1 through 11 and making it a practical application in every relationship that we have in our life, every relationship that we live. And he moves from verses 9 through 13 where he talks about our relationship into the church to verse 14 where he begins to talk about people outside the church. He says, if you believe what is written in 1 through 11, then this is how you will act to people that are not Christians. This is how you'll act to people that are outside. And as he moves outside, he picks the hardest group first 
for us to deal with. And I believe he does that because if we can ever learn to bless those who have been mean to us, who have betrayed us, who who hurt us, who persecute us, those people in our lives who make our life more difficult just because they're a part of it, if we can ever get to the place that we can bless them, then everything else he asks us to do towards those who are not believers will be easy. And so he, he lists this thing first. Paul knew it would be difficult to follow through. He knew that it was not something that we would easily grasp. So what he does is he takes verses 15 and 16 and he adds some ways that we can prepare our hearts so that we can learn to bless others. So we can learn to bless those who have hurt us. Because it's so tough. I, I know challenged you with homework for the last two weeks to go out and begin to think of somebody and and I told you you didn't have to think you know who it is that is your thorn in the flesh you know who it is that is your person that's hurt you or betrayed you that you just can't get past and so I ask you to begin to to pray that God would bless that person but not just bless them bless them the same way that you pray for God to bless you Because that's what it means to bless. Don't just write it in your prayer list, God bless them, God bless them. No, whatever you prayed for your family this week, you pray for their family. Whatever you prayed for God to do for you this week, you pray that God would do it for them. And so I know that's hard. I know it's hard to do that. Because in the second part of it was not just pray for them, then you needed to speak well of them to other people instead of cursing them, which means saying bad things. It's one thing to be in our home and begin to pray for God to bless that person that's hurt us or betrayed us. It's a whole other thing to get out into the workforce, to get out into our family, to get out into our communities. And when that person's name comes up, to speak well of them because that's the word bless. That's what it means. It's eulogio. Two words, speak well. You're supposed to speak well of them. And so Paul knew it was going to be so hard. So he says, listen, Some of you are going to struggle with it. So let me give you four principles, four traits that you can begin to apply to your life that will soften your heart so that you can be able to bless them. Because some of you are struggling with it. That's why we're still here. Some of you are struggling just with the idea of of even saying something good about that person and letting it come out of your lips because it's so easy to curse them. You've been cursing them for so long. And so he says, let me give you some hints. And and I like to think of these as kind of like stretching before you run. If you've ever exercised, they always tell you that you're supposed to stretch first, right? I never understood in PE why we had to to stretch or exercise to get into shape before we exercise. You you stretch and, and that's supposed to loosen you up. It's supposed to limber you up so then you can go run or then you can go exercise. Now you can go run and exercise without stretching, but you'll pay the price. may not even finish what you set out to do. And so what Paul does here is he helps stretch our hearts. He helps stretch our spirits. He helps stretch us spiritually so that we can get to a place where we can mutt those who persecute us, bless those who have hurt us. Now these four attitudes we began to look at last week, and we took the first two last week, and we're going to take the second two this morning. So let me read Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's the central theme of what he's trying to teach. And then he gives some stretching things underneath it. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We call that empathy. 
Last week we talked about one of the first things that you need to stretch your heart is to practice empathy. That means engaging other people emotionally. Recognizing, moving beyond just knowing what they're going through, being a part of what they're going through, feeling what they're feeling. Problem is, most of the time, we don't know what other people are going through. We don't know the struggles they have. We don't know the difficulties they have. We don't know where they've come from. And while that may not excuse the way they've treated you or the way they've acted towards you, what it does allow is for you to begin and understand what they're going through. Just practice empathy. Mourn with those that mourn. Celebrate with those that celebrate. And then he says, live in harmony one with another. And that was the second stretch. He said, not only are we supposed to practice empathy, he said, we're supposed to promote harmony. That means that we need to learn to de-escalate situations. Instead of making things worse, we need to be peacemakers. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Why? Because that's who Jesus was. Jesus was about helping people find peace. And I told you last week, an easy way to remember that is sometimes the best way to create harmony is to give up your right to always be right. To give up your right to be heard. To give up your right to have the last word. Sometimes you and I need to get to a place where the Holy Spirit says, literally, shut up instead of speaking out. If we can begin to practice empathy, if we can begin to promote harmony, we can begin to get to a place where we can bless those who are mean to us. And then he finishes in verse 15 and verse 16, while those were two positives, then he gives us two negatives. And these are things that keep us from blessing those who are persecuted. These are things that feed into retaliation, feed into revenge, feed into anger. These are the things that help build walls between you blessing those who hurt you or betray you. These are things that you've got to tear down. And so look what he says at the end of verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, he mentions two negative connotations there, two negative traits. And and I'm calling the sermon, you saw the sermon title is Pride and Prejudice, but we're going to look at prejudice first. thought about calling the sermon Prejudice and Pride, but then I thought half of you wouldn't hear anything else I said because all you would be thinking is, doesn't Rusty know that Jane Austen wrote a book called Pride and Prejudice and it's supposed to be Pride and Prejudice and and don't laugh. Some of you would have come up to me after church and said, hey, you know, you said Prejudice and Pride. It's supposed to be Pride and Prejudice. But we're going to look at prejudice first because that's the first thing that he says there. He says you need to be at a place where you can be willing to associate with people of low position. That idea of low position, thinking of someone in a low position and is in and of itself prejudicial. It's an idea of judging somebody according to a standard that you've set and then treating them according to that standard. If you want it to be positive, then you could say we need to be hospitable to everyone. We need to be open and willing to minister and love everyone. Prejudice is treating people differently because they are different than you. Formal definition of prejudice is the idea of prejudging. Prejudging somebody because they are different from you and then acting according to those preconceptions that you have. And the interesting thing is we're not born prejudiced. 
While we may be born with pride, and I believe most of us are born with pride because it's part of our self-nature, prejudice is something that's taught. Prejudice is something that's passed along. Prejudice is something that is focused in our heart from the time we're little, and we develop it all throughout our lives. And not only, most of the time, instead of our prejudices getting smaller, our prejudices grow. And what Paul is saying is it can't be that way. He's reminding us that for the Christian and for the church, there is no place for prejudice of any kind. And there are all different forms of prejudice, all different ways that we prejudge people. We prejudge people according to their skin color. We call that racism. We prejudge people according to their economic status. How much money they make or how little money they make. We prejudge them. Prejudge people according to their education level. They finished high school or, or if they've gone to college or if they've gone past college. We automatically make assumptions about people because of their education level. We prejudge people on their nationalities. Prejudge people according to what countries they come from or where they are come from. We, we even do it in the United States according to states. We prejudge people according to the states. Now, I'm from Texas, and everyone knows Texas is the best state, and that's not prejudging. That's fact. But we still have a hard time loving everybody that's not from Texas. It's okay. We prejudge people according to their genders. We prejudge people according to their religion. Even within the church, we prejudge other churches. We label them. We have preconceptions about them. And then we treat them differently because of it. You understand this has been a problem for the church all the way to the time of Jesus? It's not something that just happened. People say, you know, the church today at 11 o'clock and Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. It didn't just start that way. It went all the way back to the time of Jesus. You know, one of the greatest accusations that was made against Jesus is that he hung out with sinners. Pharisees couldn't stand him. In Matthew 11, he says, listen, they accuse me of being a drunkard because I hang out with drunks. And they accuse me of being a sinner because I'm hanging out with sinners. Because Jesus' ministry was all about going to those groups that all the religious people prejudged and loving on them. That's why it's so revolutionary when he talks about the the woman at the well because she was a Samaritan woman. Romans looked down on the Jews and the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and both of them looked down on women. That's just the way it was. And they judged those groups. And so here's Jesus going and visiting to a Samaritan woman. You know, Samaritans were considered dogs to the Jewish people. They would go out of their way, even if cutting through Samaria was a shortcut, they would go around just so they didn't have to get the dirt of Samaria on their shoe or happen to encounter a Samaritan person. So for Jesus to talk to a Samaritan and a woman, that's a double whammy. And even the disciples struggled with it. They asked him, why in the world are we stopping here? Why in the world are you talking to this woman? That's why when Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan, that was revolutionary to the people that were listening because they would never in their mind put the two words, good and Samaritan, together because they looked down on the Samaritans. But Jesus taught us that there is no prejudice in his ministry, and there can be no prejudice in those of us who call ourselves Christ followers. 
Jesus hung out with the rich people. He hung out with the religious people. But he hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people on the street. And the one thing that was similar in every circumstance is he treated them all the same. He loved them and he ministered to them. You know, it's ironic that even as Paul is writing this letter, prejudice was a huge issue in the early church. The Jewish Christians that were Christians first were prejudiced against the Gentile Christians, those who were being reached by Paul and his missionary journeys. And as these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, were coming to become Christians, the Jewish Christians that had arrived through their Judaism and understood and explained who Christ was, they judged them. Because they ate the wrong things and they didn't get circumcised and they didn't have the right holy days and they didn't still go to synagogue and they looked down on them. And it became a conflict so much so that in every letter that Paul writes to the church, he mentions it somewhere. Matter of fact, it became a heated argument between Peter and Paul. And Paul had to set Peter straight. At Jerusalem Council in Acts, Peter stands up and says, I was wrong. I was being prejudicial. Colossians 3.11 says, Here, talking about the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian. There's no Scythian. There's no slave or free. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. He said a little different to the church at Galatia. Galatians 3.28, For you are all children of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Later on in this very book, in chapter 14, he takes most of the chapter to talk about judging others and looking down on others because they were not as spiritual as they thought they were. There was prejudice in the church, and ever since the early church, it has continued down until today. Do you recognize that in the 18th and 19th and 20th century, churches and houses of worship were segregated according to your economic status? Go visit some of the earlier churches that were built in the 1700s and 1800s here in America, and you'll go to the first couple of pews, and they'll have little nameplates on them because the rich people were allowed to sit at the front. They paid a pew tax. That was their pew. And no one could sit there. And it moved back in the church according to the economic status. If you were middle class, you sat in the middle. And if you had no money, you either sat in the back or you stood in the back. That is the history of the church in America. You ever wonder why some churches were ministers and people up on stage wear robes? You know where that came from? It came from the idea that somehow we need to separate those of us who are more spiritual from those of you who are less spiritual. So we were going to wear robes. That showed people we were spiritual. And then the choir people said, well, we're spiritual. We're on stage. And so we put robes on them. It divided the congregation. You ever been in a church that had rails that go along the front of the stage? You know why those are there? It's not decoration. It's there as another way to show that those on that side need help from those of us on this side. That's what this is. People say, oh, well, that's a chair rail, so you can't see, you know, ladies wearing dresses and it's a modesty rail. No. Since the pastors and the people on stage had rails, you go in the early churches and the choirs are sitting on the side. They had a rail. Why? Because they said, listen, we need to be divided from those people too. And we can laugh about it because it's silly. 
But we do the same thing today. Moved on from robes and, and rails and pew taxes to a place where we've become self-segregated. Where now we have black churches and white churches and rich churches and poor churches and conservative churches and liberal churches. Now we may not say that with our lips, but that's the way we look at them. And we treat people from those different churches differently according to how we have prejudged where they go to church. Think of somebody you know that goes to a different church and what people might have said about that church. You, you might not even know that person and you meet them in the community. You say, where do you go to church? Well, I go to so-and-so church. All of a sudden in our mind, we start remembering what someone else told us about that church and we start prejudging them. What happened to it just being his church? Just being a place where we recognize that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Rich people don't go up any higher. Smarter people don't go up any higher. Spiritual people don't go up any higher. And the emphasis in the place of God in the body of Christ needs to stop being what is on the outside and go back to being what is on the inside. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ that flows through each of our veins that saved and redeemed us. Prejudice of any kind is a rampant sin in the church. Paul's reminding us here that we need to root it out in our own lives. We need to rid ourselves of prejudice in our heart of any kind, especially prejudice that takes place in the church. When we judge others according to how they've dressed or how they look or how they've acted in the past, You see, the beautiful thing about this place is that the only requirement to come is that you be an imperfect person. It's the only thing we ask. Sinners, that's who's invited here. You're either a saved sinner, a struggling sinner, or a sinner that we're praying finds Jesus Christ. But we're all sinners. And we've all blown it. And we've all got a past. And we need to start recognizing that when you walk through the doors of the church... Doesn't matter what degree you have or the color of your skin or what nationality you are or where you live or what you drove to get here. All that matters is that Jesus loves you and you're welcome. For those who follow Jesus Christ, the words beneath us are better than should never come out of our lips. James, who was the brother of Jesus Christ, said it, but he said it as bluntly as could be possible. Listen to what he says in James chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man comes in in shabby clothes. Just a side note, this is the only time in the Bible that what you wear to church is ever mentioned. James keeps going. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, here's a good seat for you, But you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit here at my feet. Have you not discriminated? That's prejudice. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and placed yourself as judges with evil thoughts? You know, one of the things that I brag about, that I am so happy about the body of Christ here at First Baptist Church, is we have had... U.S. ambassadors and sitting U.S. senators and congressmen and congresswomen and CEOs of Fortune 500, and they have sat next to teachers and hourly workers and housewives and doctors and nurses 
and unemployed people. And you could never tell the difference in the way they were greeted or treated in this body. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not that way everywhere. And we have got to make sure that we are always searching our heart to make sure that we don't treat people differently according to any of those prejudices that I mentioned. See, Paul wants us to see everyone the way God does, to see them as his children and to treat them accordingly. Now, what does prejudice or hospitality have to do with blessing those who persecute you? Why would that be stretching? Why would that be cultivating the ground? Our prejudices get in the way of the way and who and how we respond to those who have hurt us. We are real quick, I think, sometimes to forgive and forget and bless those who hurt us. If they are in a position to do something for us, if they have a title, if we think them somebody better than us, we are much more quick to pray for God's blessing on them than somebody who can't do anything for us or somebody who we have prejudices against. Now, I'm speaking to your heart reality. Think about some of the people who have hurt and betrayed you that you have forgiven. It's much easier sometimes to forgive people who who we think are going to do something for us, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say, bless those who persecute you if they can do something back to you. Bless those who persecute you if, if somehow they are special. He says, anybody that hurts you, you need to be quick to bless them. Anyone who's betrayed you, no matter if it's the homeless person on the street or a U.S. senator, those things don't matter. The color of their skin, what car they drive, where they live, those things don't matter. But in our hearts, they do. And so what Paul is saying is if you want to get to a place where you cultivate a discipline so that you can bless every person who has betrayed you or hurt you or disappointed you or persecute you, then you need to get rid of prejudice in your life. The best way to do it is the moment we recognize prejudice, either in our hearts or on our lips, you need to deal with it right then. Deal with it right then. Act, acknowledge it, and work to get rid of it. Because prejudice will always take deep roots if we let it. And when it begins to take deep roots, it begins to spread. And one form of prejudice becomes another form of prejudice and another form of prejudice. Paul's saying we need to work to rid ourselves of prejudice. The second thing he says there at the end of 15a and 16, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in low positions. Do not be conceited. Now he says pride twice there. Don't be proud. Don't be conceited. He's reminding us that if we expect to get to a place where we want to bless those who hurt us, then we have to cultivate humility in our lives. We need to get rid of pride. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about pride because it seems like we talk about it some way, some form or fashion every week. You know why? Because pride is at the root of almost every sin we struggle with. Pride simply is elevating yourself above others. It's putting yourself first. We elevate ourselves above our co-workers and our spouses and our neighbors and our friends and our people. And our, that's pride. We elevate ourselves above God. 
You understand pride is what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven? Pride is what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? And pride is what's keeping the gospel from being spread around our nation today? Because pride is what's keeping us from blessing those who have persecuted us? Pride is robbing you of your relationship with God? It's probably the greatest struggle that Christians face on a day-in and day-out basis is defeating pride in your heart. And what I found interesting in this whole section of Romans chapter 12 is that in each area of relationship, pride is the only factor that he mentions in every one of them because pride is a relationship destroyer. Pride at its roots will destroy every relationship you're involved in if you let it. He said first, verses 1, 2, and 3, talking about our relationship to God. What did he say in verse 3? Don't think higher of yourself than you ought. Don't be prideful. Why? Because pride is the number one reason people don't come to know Jesus Christ. Because they think they are good enough or they've done enough or they are not so bad. But for the Christian, pride will also rob you of your intimacy with God. See, pride will tell you, you don't need to go to church and you don't need to read your Bible and you don't need to pray and you don't need to sing. Pride will tell you that you don't need to love that person. What you want is most important. Pride will rob you of experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the reason most of us don't see those kind of miracles in our life is because of pride. Because instead of letting the Holy Spirit control our lives, and when He says do something, we are obedient, we say, let me think about this a little, because I may not like that. He warned us that pride destroys our relationship to God. He also warns us that pride destroys our relationship within the church. If you want to look, and he tells us in verse 10, he says, honor one another. What does that mean? That means put others above yourself. That means humble yourself in the church. Do you know why churches split? Do you know why churches across this country are dying today? Pride. We split because it was worship. We wanted contemporary and they wanted traditional, so we split. That's pride. Pride is at the root of destroying the church of Jesus Christ. That's why he said the only way that we can ever learn to get along in the body and begin to do what God's telling us to do is by every person in here putting everyone else around you above yourself, honoring them. Who can I be a blessing to within the body? Because pride destroys relationships. It destroys your relationship to God. It destroys your relationship with people in the church. And here... The third time he mentions it, it destroys our relationship with people outside the church and especially with those that you're supposed to bless. It's the same reason you've been struggling with doing this for three weeks because pride feeds your anger. Pride says you got a right to be mad. They hurt you. Pride says you you got a right to say no to that pastor. You got a right to say no to the scripture because, because they were, they did something so hurtful to you that you can never forgive them. You can never even get to a point of praying for them. Pride wants retaliation. Pride wants revenge. And pride will rob you of getting to a place where you can find redemption, not just in your own heart, but in the relationships with you have with other people. If we could ever really grasp church, how destructive pride is in every one of our relationships and how freeing humility, putting other first can be. 
It would change our families. It would change our marriages. It would change our workplaces. It would change our homes. It would change our churches. It would change our communities. Do you understand that? Imagine all the conflicts we could avoid if we went into every relationship with the idea that I am going to put that person above myself. Imagine all the arguments that wouldn't happen. Imagine all the hurts and struggles we could avoid. Just think, if we weren't always fighting and arguing and struggling and scheming to retaliate, how much free time we would actually have to do the things that God has called us to do. Imagine the free time we might have if we allowed pride to get out of our lives. We might even have time to bless those who have persecuted us. Defeating pride is reminding yourself every day, waking up and reminding yourself that you are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. I heard a pastor say one time, you want to beat pride? He said, every day, get up and look at yourself in the mirror and laugh. Look at yourself and laugh. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Realize that the rest of the world is not consumed with you. People are not out there scheming about you and talking about you. and work. It's not about you. The world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around Him. And defeating pride is waking up every day, recognizing and admitting to yourself that everything I have, everything that I own, everything that I've done, everything that I'm going to do, everything that I am is not because I did anything, because I didn't bring anything to the table. Everything I have, I've done, and I am is because of what Jesus did and what He took to the cross. And when you walk in that truth, pride has no place to our lives. So what's Paul telling us? Empathy, stretch. Soften the ground. Harmony, stretch. Soften our hearts. Hospitality, stretch a little more. Soften our hearts. Humility, stretch a little more. Soften our hearts. Three weeks we've looked at this. I think it's time for you to try. You've been stretching. You've been preparing. This morning, you began to pray that God would bless that person that's been on your heart for three weeks if you've been with us. Now, I know it's easy to read, and I know it's even easy to sit out there and listen to me preach about it for three weeks and say, yes, pastor, we need to do this. Because you guys have been nodding, amen, even when it hurts. But somewhere between knowing and agreeing and doing, it gets lost. And I hope you realize that not one life has ever been changed by good intentions. Let me close with this. You know, when you're young, and young is a relative term, but when you're young, you don't have to stretch before you exercise. You remember those days? Praise the Lord. You just, I mean, they say go run. Okay, you just take off, right? Didn't hurt. Didn't ache, didn't breathe heavy. But what I found is the older you get, the more you have to stretch. Sometimes it takes me longer to stretch than it actually does to run or exercise. And it's the same way for the Christian. What I find is that many times new believers don't hesitate with believing and obeying the Word of God because they read it and Jesus is so real in their life and the Holy Spirit is so real to them. They read it and say, says to do it, I'm going to do it. And they put it into practice. They just go. They don't need to stretch. But for a lot of older Christians, people have been in the faith a long time. 
we've gotten comfortable. We like it where we are. And we can't just get up and change overnight. Now, you'd think it'd be the opposite. you think the older you get and the more faith you have, when God says do something, you're, okay, I've seen him answer it in the past, and I'm going to do it without even questioning. And some people do that. But for most of us, we kind of have gotten cynical and kind of gotten jaded and kind of gotten comfortable. So Paul knew about you and me. We're older. I've been a believer over 40 years. And it's easy for me to read this and think, that's a good idea, Pastor. I hope some people in the church do it. But he's talking to me. But being a believer for 40 years, I've seen. I've done it. And I've been hurt again and hurt again and hurt again. But he doesn't say, bless those who hurt you and betray you because they'll stop hurting you. Because you see, the issue with you blessing those who hurt you is not about them, it's about you. Now it may change them when you start talking good about them and it may convict them when you heap coals of goodness on them and their life may change. But that's not the focus here. The focus is you. Paul is telling you and I today is that we have got to begin making a practice of blessing those who have hurt us and betray us. Not because it's going to change those people. Because God wants to change you. Let's pray.